When you think about the fact that half of the carbon emissions that are currently in the atmosphere today were emitted in the last 30 years, and according to the IPCC, we have 30 years to really turn that tanker, you know, we really do need to be looking at um, solutions that can rapidly accelerate this transition that, we're, that we need to make. This is Energy in Conversation, a look into our energy future through the eyes of people leading the way. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. Over the past decade, advanced economies have started to change the way they generate electricity to emit less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and turn the ship around on climate change. On today's episode, we consider nuclear power, a source of electricity that's been providing nearly zero carbon power around the clock for decades, but doesn't share the popular appeal of renewables. In part one, we'll explore how nuclear stacks up when it comes to public opinion, cost, and meeting electricity demand. In part two, we'll find out about an innovative new way of building nuclear power stations, small modular reactors, or SMRs for short. They represent an entirely new way of building nuclear, but can SMRs compete with the falling price and rising popularity of renewables? Today we're joined by two guests who'll help us find out. First up is Kirsty Gogan. Hi, my name is Kirsty Gogan. I'm the uh, co-founder and global director of Energy for Humanity, which is an NGO focused on solving climate change and global energy access. I would describe myself as a new environmentalist, which is characterized as somebody who's focused on evidence-based decision-making and an open-minded view of technology and the role that it can play in helping us to solve our, our, our large challenges. So Kirsty, why does electricity matter so much for climate change? Yeah, so I mean, solving climate change, in some ways, you can boil it down to a simple two-step strategy, because as uh, Professor Sir David Mackay said, the climate problem is basically an energy problem. And so the simple two-step strategy is, first of all, clean up your electricity generation, and then electrify as much as possible, as efficiently as possible. In many countries, the proportion of electricity provided by renewables has shot up in recent years. Here in the UK, we've gone from less than 7% in 2009 to over a third just 10 years later. So why can't we just keep adding more renewables? The challenge is that weather-dependent energy sources like wind and solar can't meet our electricity needs entirely on their own because we can't control when they provide power. Here's our second guest to explain. This is Paul Stein. I'm the Chief Technology Officer of Rolls-Royce, and Rolls-Royce is a broadly-based power systems company, most famous for our, our jet engines for aircraft, but also we have quite a sizable nuclear operation. So when we talk about intermittent renewables, we mean renewables uh, which don't produce energy all of the time. So clearly, uh, wind energy doesn't produce energy when the wind's not blowing, solar energy doesn't produce energy when the sun isn't shining, and tidal um, is actually a pretty good intermittent renewable in that we know when the tide is coming in and out, but even that doesn't produce energy all of the time. Although it would drastically reduce carbon dioxide emissions, an electricity system based only on renewables still needs some way to meet demand in times when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. One way of backing up renewables is storing the extra energy produced on sunny or windy days for use later, for instance in a battery. Right now, energy storage technology isn't ready at a nationwide scale for this kind of bulk storage. There's also always some level of demand for electricity. It never drops all the way to zero in most countries, and is unlikely to unless we become a lot more flexible about when we switch things on. Have a listen to our episode on Energy's Digital Upgrade for more on flexible energy use. 
So it's useful to have a source of electricity that's available to meet that minimum demand regardless of the weather. This is called baseload power. A reliable, low-carbon electricity system will probably need a mix of renewables, storage, and baseload sources. So what we're talking about today is not an either-or debate, but more of a look at the relative strengths and weaknesses of various baseload options, like nuclear. We're already seeing, you know, a hugely successful build-out of uh, offshore wind in particular, but renewables more generally. But in order to maintain reliability and affordability and security of supply, what we are going to need is firm baseload power. Now, the Committee on Climate Change estimates that we'll need something like 30 to, to 60 gigawatts of clean, firm, that means dispatchable, baseload power in the mix by around 2050. Now some of that obviously will, you know, we hope come from carbon capture and storage, so probably gas with with CCS, but we'd also anticipate a really significant role from nuclear. Kirsty is referring to a landmark report by the UK's Committee on Climate Change from 2019 called Net Zero, which sets out how the UK can reach its target to eliminate or offset all greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. The 2019 figures aren't out yet, but in 2018, renewables provided a third of the UK's electricity, while gas accounted for 40% and nuclear 20%. So gas is a big player at the moment, and while it ticks the box on reliability and flexibility for backing up renewables, we're relying on carbon capture and storage, or CCS that Kirsty mentioned, to clean up its emissions and reach net zero. CCS is a technology that the Committee on Climate Change considers a necessity for reaching net zero by 2050. But carbon capture and storage hasn't yet gotten off the ground at the kind of scale we'll need to capture the carbon dioxide from the large proportion of electricity globally that's provided by either gas or other fossil fuels. What about the other large-scale source of baseload power, nuclear? It's been used to generate electricity in the UK since the 1950s and plays a significant role in the electricity mix for France, the US, South Korea, and others. It covers some of that minimum electricity demand seen on those countries' grids, reducing the amount of gas or coal burned to provide baseload power. The process itself doesn't result in any emissions of carbon dioxide. But like other sources of electricity, it's not without drawbacks. I mean, I say sometimes that, you know, there's two big barriers facing um, nuclear technology making a meaningful contribution towards solving climate change. And one is high costs, and the other is low public confidence. Let's take these one at a time. First, the public confidence issue. Some people understandably have concerns about safety, particularly what happens in the case of an accident, as well as how to deal with radioactive waste. Nuclear accidents like Chernobyl and Fukushima leave a lasting impression, not only due to immediate impacts, but also the prospect of long-lasting and far-reaching contamination. It's not surprising that many view it with caution. The long-term handling of waste is another potential red flag although it is highly controlled. Both our guests stress that all forms of electricity generation carry a degree of risk to the people or the environment, and that nuclear is one of the most tightly regulated. Of course, all energy technologies have waste streams, and the nuclear industry is the only industry that takes full responsibility of its waste, is incredibly good at containing and managing and you know, taking care of it so that it doesn't harm anybody um, or the environment. And on the other hand, you know, fossil fuels are chugging their waste streams directly out into the atmosphere. They're treating the sky as a waste dump. If we're serious about um, solving climate change, which is actually 
the great existential threat that we now face as a species, then we are going to have to make much more of an effort to make evidence-based and objective assessments of risk. The issues around nuclear safety and radioactive waste are sensitive and complex. Every technology has benefits and drawbacks, environmental or other risks, and will work in some places and for some people, but not for others. It's really difficult to directly compare the risks of different technologies, especially when the risks are beyond the scale of a single lifetime, such as radioactive waste or climate change. It's the role of each country to decide how to balance the technologies they use to reduce carbon emissions so that the risks posed by those technologies are acceptable for the people who live there. Returning to Kirsty's previous point, the second major barrier facing nuclear power is high cost. And lots of people do ask that question, you know, can we really rely on nuclear to make this meaningful contribution to climate change? When you look out the window here in the UK and you, and you think, hmm, it looks pretty expensive and slow. So nuclear power has played a role in zero carbon power generation, in fact, since the late 50s when Calder Hall was opened, but has suffered until now from cost. Uh, the fact is that the cost of nuclear, large nuclear power stations is not going down with time. And we've seen with some of the latest generation of large nuclear power stations that the costs can be quite eye-watering. The power station Paul mentions, Calder Hall, was the world's first civil nuclear power station. The UK was a pioneer of nuclear power, but hasn't built a new power station in decades. After over 20 years, one is currently being built at Hinkley Point in Somerset. Hinkley Point C, or HPC, is a massive civil engineering project, credited with reviving the UK's nuclear workforce and supply chain. When complete, it's set to deliver 3.2 gigawatts of generating capacity for an estimated 60 years. That's expected to meet around 7% of the entire UK's electricity needs. But there have been bumps in the road. EDF, the company building and operating the power station, have pushed back the completion date and raised the final cost prediction from 18 billion pounds to around 22.5 billion pounds. These costs don't get passed through to the consumer, but cost increases can be discouraging for those considering building similar plants elsewhere. Despite the rising costs at Hinkley Point C, EDF have indicated they'll be able to reduce the costs of future power stations. Kirsty's NGO has researched low-cost nuclear programs in countries including China and South Korea, where costs of nuclear plants are half or even one-third of those built in the US and Europe. So how do they do it? And, you know, you might sort of ask some questions about, oh, are there corners being cut on safety? Is labor cheap in those other countries? And actually what we found is that it's not to do with cutting corners on safety. It's not to do with labor being cheap. It's because they've got really good at it. Because you can very rapidly, once you start building up experience and skills within the supply chain and labor and project leadership, and you build the same design repeatedly, you can bring down costs very quickly. And that's what, exactly what we would expect to see happening right now in the UK. We'd expect to see a 30% reduction from, from one project to the next at HPC to Sizewell C, which is the next nuclear power station that's planned here in the UK. And then we'd expect to see further cost reductions beyond those projects so that very rapidly between just a small number of projects we would start to see a very steep cost reduction curve to levels that would be competitive um, not only with with uh, other low carbon sources of energy but even with fossil fuels. This fleet approach repeatedly building the same design of a power station 
has shown that costs can be driven down, but the delivery times of these large-scale projects are still long, and the current cost structure in the UK means that the cost is embedded in the price of electricity over the first 35 years of the power station's life. When you think of the cost reductions seen in wind and solar, this fixed cost for 35 years can look less financially attractive. So engineers and designers have been working on a new approach to building nuclear power stations. At Rolls-Royce, we brought together a consortium of great civil engineering and electrical engineering companies, as well as ourselves, to try and tackle the problem of how can we produce zero carbon power from a nuclear power station at considerably less cost than the large reactors. So we discovered early on in our analysis um, that the costs of the big reactors are really driven by the fact that these are large civil engineering uh, constructions where each reactor is built piece by piece on the site where it's ultimately going to operate. And that really isn't a formula for decreasing the capital cost of ownership. We wondered whether you could prefabricate the major parts of a nuclear power station in a controlled environment, in a flow line environment, using similar flow line technology uh, that we use for producing jet engines. And the answer was we could. Enter the Small Modular Reactor, or SMR. The technology used to generate electricity in an SMR is very similar to a traditional nuclear power station, like Hinkley Point C. It's just smaller. So why is it so different? It's less to do with how the power is generated and more to do with how the power station is built. Moving from a project-based approach to a product-based approach, it's the equivalent of Henry Ford's assembly line or prefabricated homes, mass-produced in pieces in factories and assembled on-site. So our small modular reactor design uh, isn't so small, in fact. In fact, its, its electricity output will be 440 megawatts, which is somewhere between a quarter and a third of the big reactors. But importantly, in fact, vitally, all of the elements of the SMR will be produced in a factory and then shipped to site and then effectively bolted together on site to produce the power station uh, rather than uh, making the whole power station from scratch. Uh, on the final site that it'll, it'll operate. And in fact, the easiest place to site them is on what we call brownfield sites. So these are decommissioned reactors of which there are plenty of sites around the UK which have got grid connections, water supply, um, but most importantly, a local population who are very familiar with having nuclear power station in their vicinity and have got a lot of nuclear skills. Um, so sites like Trusfinith in Wales are absolutely perfect sites for setting up uh, small modular reactors. Typically, a 440 megawatt small modular reactor, the reactor itself will be in something like the size of a football field. Uh, the whole site is about 10 acres, which is about a tenth of the size of a big reactor site. So the SMR is predicted to be less financially risky than larger reactor designs. But how do SMRs compete on price with other forms of low-carbon electricity? When we brought all the costs of this design together, we've had it accredited that the what's called the levelized cost of electricity, that's the real cost of electricity that you sell at the wires leading out of the reactor, is only £60 a megawatt hour, which is quite a breakthrough because for the first time it puts nuclear into the same territory uh, as wind energy. We can compare this to the latest actual electricity prices agreed by the UK government. Hinkley Point C was around £90 per megawatt hour, power from natural gas is around £55, and offshore wind has dropped to about £40. 
But will that predicted 60 pounds per megawatt hour still be competitive by the time the first SMRs come onto the grid in the 2030s? Nuclear prices are often locked in for the majority of a power station's lifetime. In the case of Hinkley Point, that's the first 35 years. Meanwhile, the price of electricity from other low-carbon sources has been steadily falling. The price of electricity from gas varies with the cost of fuel. But remember, we'll need to add on carbon capture and storage if we're going to continue using gas and still meet countries' net zero targets. And this will probably add on costs. With all but one of the UK's existing nuclear power stations due to close by the end of this decade, the nuclear industry needs to decide a strategy if they want to compete for a future share of the electricity mix. Will that mean building a new, modern fleet of large-scale power stations? Or will small modular reactors, using factory-style economies of scale, displace those larger designs? The reality is, is that we are going to need conventional gigawatt-scale nuclear reactors to replace our existing fleet at least, but we also have a lot of sites available potentially for small modular reactors. I, I don't think it's one versus the other. I think the reality is, is that there's, there's a lot of work to do here and we're going to need every tool at our disposal. So all the most credible, um, authoritative studies looking at the science of climate change and what will be needed to transition our, our whole economy from fossil fuels and probably double or triple it to meet rising global energy demand tells us that we are going to need a massive expansion of solar, a massive expansion of wind, a massive expansion of energy efficiency, but we're also going to need to expand carbon capture and storage and nuclear technology. And right now there's a gap between what's being described in that science literature and what's actually being advocated in the public sphere. So that's why I think, you know, it's really important that we bridge the gap and that we're not just looking at, you know, technologies and exclusion, but we're actually looking at the performance of the whole system and the contribution that these different technologies will make. So the International Energy Agency just published a report in May saying that if the OECD countries allow their existing nuclear fleet to just decline and go out of service without being maintained and and having its life extended, then we could be looking at an additional 4 billion tonnes of carbon emissions in the atmosphere. And really the, the, the take-home conclusion of this is that if we don't invest properly in maintaining and expanding our existing nuclear fleet, the IEA says that we will make our efforts to solve climate change much more difficult and much more expensive. There's no silver bullet when it comes to cleaning up electricity generation. Renewables are clean and increasingly cheap, gas is flexible and affordable, and nuclear is reliable and low carbon. It's not clear whether nuclear can maintain or build public confidence, cut costs, and speed up construction to fill the gaps that will be left by the last generation of nuclear stations closing. For his part, Paul is optimistic. Sometimes in the world of industry, there's a great coming together of technology uh, and of customer demand. For example, the famous development of the iPhone, I think, is seen as iconic in that regard. And what I feel about small modular reactors is exactly the same thing, that the crisis that the world now faces, uh, as we need to drive down the amount of man-made CO2, uh, has arrived just at the time when manufacturing technology knows how to rise to the challenge of producing an affordable way of decarbonising the grid. Thank you very much to today's guests, Kirsty Gogan and Paul Stein. 
For further reading on all things nuclear and to check out our other episodes, visit energy-inst.org slash podcast. Energy in Conversation is brought to you by the Energy Institute. This episode was produced by Sarah George and Daniel DeVeza. Music on this episode is by Jack Keeney and me. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. Be sure to tune in for the next episode of Energy in Conversation, when Energy Institute Chief Executive Louise Kingham sits down with Martin Wetzelaar from Shell and Bob Ward from the Grantham Institute to find out what today's oil and gas companies will look like in a net zero world of 2050. Our final question, if you could have an energy superpower, what would it be? <laughs> you mean personally? Yeah. Well, um, I will talk about fusion. Um, I should really ask my son to answer that question. He's really interested in fusion, and I'm really interested in fusion. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah. The nuclear people love fusion. Yeah, I know. Oh. Surprise. Surprise.